Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Allison. And I'm Erica. And before we start, be sure to follow us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. You can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. What's up, Erica? Oh, not much. Just kind of enjoying the summer and all the Beatles-related things that I seem to be doing. How about you? Yeah, same. I mean, not enjoying the summer so much, but <laughs> uh, God, it's so hot. Um, but yeah, same. I mean, lots going on in the Beatle world, which is fun. I know. Um, I'm a little pissed at Paul right now, I must say, because like, shut up and take my money. McCartney, one, two, three. Oh, it looks so nice. I know. It, why does he do Like, I already bought three. Come on. like. <laughs> and then there's, like, of course, like a color variant. There's a black version. There's, you know, God, there's a CD. It's like, Paul, first you do the, like, a million colors of McCartney 3. And then it's, you know, different versions of this thing. Ugh. I know. And I've already bought, like, four or five different versions of McCartney in my life oh yeah totally yeah it's like one of those that you find you just pick it up because it looks cool yeah 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 and i love the pictures i love the extra pictures i love the way the box set looks it's gonna be great but it's just like oh i should have seen it coming no (laughs) i'm so dumb (laughs) gotta save up i know if anybody out there has bought it already let us know is it as good as it looks is it worth it yeah, we need we need some uh, like crowdsourced reviews first before we shell out the dough. But we'll probably do it anyway. We're I know. Kidding. I know. Yeah. I mean, will I put it right next to my copy of McCartney three with the the color disc that I have? Will I put it in front of it? Will I just make a McCartney wall in my house? What am I going to do with all this stuff? Why don't you already have a McCartney wall? Is my question. I just don't have a large enough wall. That's true. That's yeah, true. I'm going to have to get rid of furniture to do this, but I will do it for Paul. You are the resident apologist, so you should probably get on that. I, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Don't make me feel guiltier than I already do. Uh, I won't. But <laughs> hey, a DIY, weekend DIY, I'm just saying. Mm, sounds like fun. <laughs> Absolutely, it does. <laughs> yeah, another thing I came across this the past two weeks was, well, I kind of knew about this, but before this week, had you heard of the Teetles before? <sighs> I did. And I've got to say, Erica, because my birthday was this past week. They say and it is your birthday. Yeah, yeah, it's my birthday too. Yeah, it was. I got to sh- give you a little shout out because you got me an awesome gift from the Teetles. And it's this guy in, what, Liverpool, right? I think Hugh lives in Liverpool. He He's Welsh and he actually moved to Liverpool. Yeah, after, yeah. Yeah, doing the, um, the Teetles stuff. Right. So... <laughs> And I absolutely love this. I love a niche hobby, especially within the Beatles world. But so this this guy, Hugh, collected over 400 photos of the Beatles drinking tea. And so now he does like sort of art projects with them. But he also does a little like fanzine magazine called The Teals. Yeah. And it's like a play off of the Beatles monthly magazines that have been around forever. But it looks more like a zine from like the late 90s, early 2000s to me because it's like full color and it's it's really eclectic. And the stories in it are about the Beatles fandom more than the Beatles even. It's really cool. 
different contributors talking about the Beatles' influences on them. And of course, lots of photos of the Beatles drinking tea. Yes, yes. And the gift that you got me is a bunch of different cards with the tea images on them. But, you know, of course, my favorite is the photo of Brian drinking tea, which I saw on Instagram, God, maybe earlier this year and loved because he's got such a scowl on his face where, you know, somebody (laughs) just said some bullshit. Probably it was Paul. Oh, I would. Yeah, sure. Let's just make a call. <laughs> Everybody thinks John annoyed him the most, but I really, I think it was Paul. John frustrated him the most, but I think Paul annoyed him the most. Yes, those two things are very different, especially mm-hmm. considering John and Paul and Brian. So uh, I would agree with that. Um, but the the magazine is really cool. Yeah, I, it's very well designed. I had a really good time reading some of the articles the other day and uh, need to like go back and finish it. But it's cool. It's got like different poems and some photos. There's a really great photo spread of just places in Liverpool that have Beatles related like signs up or, you know, kind of things that you don't usually see on Instagram or on social media. So yeah, I, I, that was a really, really cool gift. And when I got the package, set the titles outside, like on the back cover or whatever. And I was just like, oh my God, I know what's in here. Got to be that picture of Brian <laughs> holding the teacup. Of course it is. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. I need to frame it. They sent me the magazine too. And I'm not going to lie, you get a package that says Royal Mail. And I'm like, yeah. oh, <laughs> I know. I know. I love it. Every time, yeah. Packages from England are just superior to the packages. Yeah. I'm going to be a subscriber for this. They're big on Beatles Twitter, the Teetles, Beatles with a T. If you want some fun, definitely follow them. So great. And super creative. I love a creative fan project more than almost anything. Yes. The the obsession is really admirable. I love, I love it. Me too. So great. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of obsession, I watched A Hard Day's Night again. First time since 2014 was the last time I saw it because it came out in 4K. Yes. And it was in the theater. So that was the last time I've seen it. I, th- I thought you went to see it in the theater. I did. I actually traveled across the country to see it in New York City. Aw, that's fun. <laughs> I don't know if we knew each other then because I saw it in New York. I saw it at the, uh, the film forum. Film forum. So did I. <gasps> I think it was probably, it was right before we met, right? Because I think that Rebe came about just around yeah, Ringo's birthday. July. And mm-hmm. I feel like that happened in June or, or Oh my May. God. Were we at the same showing and we didn't know each other? We probably <gasps> were. That's crazy. I was with like a <laughs> bunch of fest people like at that showing, like Marco Pitos and uh, God, uh, Susan Ryan. I can't remember who else. But Oh my God. I didn't know any of you guys oh back my, then. That's so crazy. Um, I had no idea. What? How fun. How did we not know this about each other? This is crazy. I love uh, that. I Little did we know. Yeah. We were just sitting in that same theater, obsessing over 4K Hard Day's Night. I want to know, since you haven't seen it, you know, how long, ever long, what did you think about it again? It holds up so well. <sighs> I could not believe right? it. Like, I know it's on the list of like AFI top 100 movies and stuff like that. I know nothing about film. Like, I'm really an idiot when it comes to this stuff. So, like, one of my favorite movies ever is Moulin Rouge, and one of my other favorite movies ever is Aladdin. Like, I have no qualms admitting that my film tastes are, like, super basic. So I don't know what that really means. Um, But (laughs) it really is good. It's really funny. The acting is surprisingly good. And there's that scene near the end where Ringo kind of skives off and he spends time with that kid rolling Mm -hmm. a tire around and 
is incognito. It's great. It's a great scene. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, everybody always says Ringo was the best actor. I could see that. He did get the meaty roles, right? And both mm-hmm. The Hard Day's Night and Hell. Yeah, they're all just so charming in A Hard Day's Night. I can see how it was an amazing marketing machine for their fans to get to know them on the big screen. And my God, so many Beatles close-ups. Of course, the girls are going to fall in love with them. Oh, yeah. Uh, Plus, I mean, I think I saw some debate about this on Instagram or Twitter, maybe a few weeks ago or a month ago, about how the Hard Day's Night soundtrack is one of the most underrated Beatles albums, which 100% I agree. Some people are not fans, but I think that is such a solid group of songs. Obviously, it makes the movie that much better, but it's a standalone album, too. It really holds up. Yeah, I totally agree. It's like they really, really hit their stride as far as what the early Beatles period is. And you're sort of hearing some hints of what's to come in their next period in a way. Like, I feel like right. If I Fell is one of those songs where like, they're getting more complex and they're exploring themes that aren't quite boy loves girl, girl loves boy. It's a little different. They're exploring new harmonies, new chords, new ways of making the music. and But it's still very pop friendly it's still very early Beatles at the same time and the film you know considering it I'm not an expert in film at all either but considering it in the context of like the 60s cinema scene you know obviously we wouldn't have had again the monkeys without a hard day's night that was kind of what kicked that off we wouldn't have so many other you know uh I I would say rock films too without Mm -hmm. that kind of being you know, sort of a, gosh, I almost want to say like a mockumentary because, you know, based off of what the Beatles' lives are really like, you know, here's sort of a novelization of their actual lives. So good. Oh, now I want to watch A Hard Day's Night again. You should. It was really worth it. It was great. It's so good. It's like one of those comfort movies you just like put on. Yeah. Oh, I remember when I got my very first laptop when I was going away to college in like 2004, you know, the Stone Age, and I was so excited to have a laptop. And I had just gotten The Hard Day's Night on DVD. And actually, it's weird. I'm looking at the DVD right now. I have it in my apartment. But I popped that thing into my new laptop. And I'm just so astounded because I could, like, they're right there on my laptop. Like, I didn't have to, like, watch them on a VHS on my my home uh, TV or whatever. And I, I'll never forget running up, <laughs> running upstairs. My mom was asleep. I was like, Mom, look, I can watch A Hard Day's <laughs> Night on my laptop. <laughs> so excited. <laughs> Oh, man, so such cute. a it's so good. Like, yeah, I mean, such a, and there, there's such just something so intimate about that movie, too. I mean, yeah. I know that it was a script, but the script was really based off of their personalities and things they really said at press conferences and things that were really going on in their life. And it feels very natural in that way. Absolutely. It doesn't feel like they're playing characters. Uh, what we've seen of them at press conferences and all that kind of thing. You know, I just wish, you know, maybe Brian could have had a cameo. I'm just saying, like, no offense to Shake or Neil or whoever, but now come on, like, let's get Brian in there. They didn't need Shake and Neil. They could have had Brian and George Martin. <laughs> well, Brian and George Martin needed their own, like, True Detective-esque, uh, oh <laughs> like, like, mystery movie or show. Like, I mean, that's a whole other... <laughs> So oh, I would watch the shit it. out of that on Brickbox. Oh, right? Oh, that'd be so at home on Brickbox or Acorn. Right. Oh, my God. There's like a shot. This is totally off topic. There's a shot of Brian and George Martin in a convertible in Miami. And it is the best, like, it should be a poster for some sort of, like, true crime mystery show where they're detectives. If anybody of you knows that photo, and we'll, I'll try to remember to post it. But it, somebody make it into a poster for, like, the two of them being true detective style 
like detectives. So oh my amazing. god, I've never so seen that. Definitely <laughs> post that. They look badass. It's so great. Oh my god, I'm so excited about this. Seeing this picture. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Well, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. So I'm gonna continue this. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch Help for the first time in a very long time after this, just to see how that holds up. I feel like it isn't going to hold up as well, but I will let you know. Health is probably a little problematic these days, but you know. I mean, do you like watching cultural appropriation? Then you love the help. I, I don't know. It's 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 tough. It's a, it's a little hard. It's tough. It's tough because it's in color too. So it's like, that's, that's great. But yeah, the plot of A Hard Day's Night is better, but yeah. It's hard. So where are you? Are you watching these on DVD? Or are you streaming them somewhere? Hard Day's Night is on HBO Max. Oh, fabulous. There we go. So on to today's feature. It's been a very beatily week for us, I guess. Isn't it always? It isn't. Uh, it's just a life we need, Erica. Really. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so we had had this idea when we restarted again around Paul's tour to kind of play off that because, you know, obviously Paul made us do it. What else is new? And do a series of episodes about the Beatles touring experiences, their various touring experiences. And there's been so many. And one of the ones that I wanted to really think about was the first one that we've been hearing about for a while, which was that the Beatles took a short tour with British singer Johnny Gentle in Scotland. And I didn't know very much about it. So I was going to do one about, you know, a few of their early tours like that one. And there was one with Helen Shapiro. And I found that there was so much to the Johnny Gentle tour, even though it was so short, that I'm going to make it a two-parter. So this week is part one. And we're going to talk about the Beatles' first ever tour, which was in 1960, which I could not believe. That seems like eons before, you know, their British invasion to America, even. Yeah, it was before Hamburg. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't know. I figured it was probably like 62 or something after they had, maybe after Brian had picked them up and gotten the tour or something. But no, it was so early. And I thought that was really interesting because it reveals a lot about what the music industry was like back then and what it meant to kind of work on this local networking level, which is sort of what you had to do as opposed to today when technology means that you don't need a million teenage bands to play your preferred set list, which is kind of what had to happen back then if you were going to have a dance. You had to book a band. You didn't have a good sound system. You didn't maybe didn't have all the records. You couldn't make a killer playlist on Spotify. Yeah, you you got like teenage bands to play these popular songs. And in a way, it's interesting because it seems like there was a good amount of gig work for these guys, all of these guys who were willing to learn an instrument and, you know, play the most popular songs with teenagers. So it was really interesting to go through it. So I'm going to go through it today and tell you the story of the Johnny Gentle tour. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited because I don't know much about this either. So this is going to be really, really super interesting. The first thing I learned that I didn't know was that Liverpool was already known as a place to find some talent. And one of the powerhouses behind that was uh, the UK impresario 
Larry Parnes, who I'm sure a lot of people know that name. He was the first major British pop music manager, and he came to Liverpool to scout new talent. And he found some of these more popular artists like Tommy Steele, who I think most people who know anything about early British rock know that name, and Billy Fury, another one, Lance Fortune, and then later Johnny Gentle, who was one of the up-and-coming prospects at the time. So who was Johnny Gentle? Johnny Gentle was born John Askew in 1936. And even though that's only four years older than John Lennon, it's basically a different generation because the mandatory military service ended for boys that were born 1940 and beyond. So it kind of formed a generational dividing line. And I think in a way it made those guys grow up a lot faster because they had to, they had to join the army. And, you know, I think a lot of them just went to find work sooner and they seemed like adults. Like you look at these pictures of British teenagers in the fifties and they look so old, you know, they're all dressed like their parents. Absolutely. Johnny was more of that generation. He started out as an apprentice carpenter learning a trade. And I thought this was really interesting. In 1957, he made his own guitar from instructions he found in a woodworking magazine. And it was said to have actually worked and sounded really good. He could have had a whole second life after his his, uh, hit career (laughs) making guitars. Yeah, very cool that he was able to do that. Um, So he started his music career with his homemade guitar. He and a partner were playing popular songs in local social clubs like Bye Bye Love and Wake Up Little Susie. And again, like we were talking about earlier, live music was just in so much demand at this time. Technological innovations meant that the best way to hear a playlist was to get a bunch of teenagers to play it for you. Um, so there was kind of a network of these these gigs and ways to get these gigs. A lot of the local bands would play their gigs at night, and on Sundays they would go audition for local bookers and promotions. And this is how the Beatles got a lot of their gigs. And another way they did this was through these talent competitions, where I think a lot of the times the prizes were fairly nominal, but it was a chance to sort of get in front of these producers and these promoters and these agents, you know, and like Larry Parnes, like some of these guys would come down from London and they would try and find the next breakout hits. So all of these guys were kind of in the circuit auditioning for local gigs and hoping that one of them would be the breakout that they they needed. In 1958, Johnny Gentle, or John Askew, entered a talent competition at Butlin's Holiday Camp, which plays a pretty big role in the Beatles story later, as that is where John and Paul and George wooed Ringo to leave Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. But unfortunately, Johnny at this time performed in this audition under the name George Baker, and he lost. And a um, terrible name. I know, terrible name. This is a theme in Johnny's life. <laughs> yeah, he's just getting started with those terrible names. Yeah, so George Baker, not going to work. He tried again. This time he's calling himself Ricky Damone. Changed his name to Ricky after Ricky Nelson, and he said he liked the name Damone because he thought it was show businessy sounding. It just reminds me, it's giving Paul Ramon <laughs> yeah. vibes. Yeah, it does. <laughs> he was Paul Ramon before Paul Ramon. Soon after, Johnny... John Askew, whatever his name is, he moved to London and he did win a competition at the Locarno Ballroom. And this was the first big in for him because it gave him industry contacts, including the address of Larry Parnes. So he wrote 
to Larry Parnes asking for an audition. Parnes gave him one. Johnny passed the audition and Parnes signed him to a six record deal after that audition. So he was pretty good. I mean, a six record deal is, is a lot. That's yeah, that's substantial. And six record, by the way, we should clarify that means six singles, right? Not six LPs. Because at that point, right, singles were yeah. the big market. Yeah, 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 definitely. Can you imagine? Gosh, six LPs, like, son, <laughs> we're, that's a real vote of confidence in you. <laughs> not even the Beatles could get a six no, record I was gonna deal. Say, <laughs> consider the Beatles didn't get that. <laughs> I'm not sure if Johnny made it through all six of the record deals, but I think he might have. In addition, they saw promise for Johnny as far as a touring personality. So he was assigned a fellow Liverpudlian, Hal Carter, as his tour manager, who was also managing Billy Fury's tour. And, you know, Larry Parnes was trying to set him up to start touring the country. One problem he did have, though, was the name. Didn't like Ricky Damone, didn't like any of the other names. Larry Parnes suggested he call himself Tim McGee. Wow. Uh, Very sexy. Yeah, yeah. And the ghee part of McGee is spelled like the butter, the knockout butter, <laughs> FYI. So even better. It's got that, you know, really uh, amazing, like exotic H in there. <laughs> yes. Exotic H. <laughs> it's some, the exotic H. It's some style. I love it. <laughs> Maybe if your name is Larry Parnes, you think I Tim McGee so. is Anything a sexy name. Good. Yeah. <laughs> but Johnny did not agree. He said no. And then Parnes said, your name is Johnny and you're a quiet guy. So how about Johnny Gentle? And with that, the stage name finally stuck, at least for now. I mean, Johnny Gentle is a good name, especially if you consider it's the late 50s, right? And, you know, Johnny Angel is a song and Johnny XYZ, you know, there's a million Johnnies in entertainment. So he should have just stuck with his, his real first name. I think Askew is a great last name. I think so, too. It's very, like, dignified and Yeah, it's nice. unique. It's memorable. I guess, you know, back then, everybody was trying to sound like some fictionalized version of what a superstar is supposed to be. I suppose. This esoteric thing that nobody can really put their finger on. Yeah. Another th- interesting thing about Johnny is that he wrote his first single. Um, it's called Wendy. It's cute. Let's give it a listen. You know, it, you know what it reminded me of? What? Is Linda, which was a single, it was written, that was written about 12 years before Wendy, but Linda, la, 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 Linda, was written about Linda McCartney. Right? Did you know that? Yeah, I did know that. I'd forgotten. Yeah, when she was, she was a little girl though. Like, yeah. The songwriters, which their names escape me at the moment, but they were friends with her father and they wrote it for little Linda Eastman. So when I was listening to Wendy earlier, I was like, oh, this is totally reminding me of Linda. Yeah. And Johnny has a very nice voice. He reminds me of like the teen angel in Greece or like Frankie Avalon sort of singles, very rich sort of 
sweet crooner kind of voice. He followed that with a song called Milk from the Coconut that's slightly better, but it only reached number 28. Then he followed it with an EP called The Gentle Touch. Huh, I don't which, like that. Ew. <laughs> I don't like it. That's <laughs> okay. icky. That's icky. That's gross. I mean, <laughs> it, it was very much of its time, let's just say. Yeah. You, you try and release that now, yeah, not nah. going to work out. Not going to work, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I think at that point, he had enough singles out that he could start thinking about touring. It's at this point when he's, he kind of entered the Beatles' orbit. And that's because in 1960, Larry Parnes co-promoted an event with famous Liverpool coffee bar owner and promoter Alan Williams. Uh, This event was going to be at the Liverpool Stadium. And of course, Alan Williams looms large in the Beatles legend, businessman and promoter. He opened the legendary Jacaranda Coffee Club. He was the Beatles' first manager. He personally drove them to their first Hamburg gig. Unfortunately, he fell out with the Beatles in 1961 over a fight about commission payments. And when Brian took over as manager, Alan Williams famously warned him, don't touch them with a fucking barge pole. They will let you down. (laughs) That was the most succinct and amazing resume of Alan Williams I've ever heard. (laughs) Congratulations. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) That's so good. Fittingly, he wrote a book. It's called The Man Who Gave the Beatles Away. Yeah, pretty accurate. Yeah. So initially, this concert that Larry Parnes and Alan Williams were promoting was to have both Eddie Cochran, super famous in in Britain at the time, and Gene Vincent as co-headliners. But Cochran was famously and tragically killed in a road accident right before the show was supposed to go on. It was April 17th, 1960, and the show was May 3rd. So it's wild. You know, yeah, that was a big tragic thing. And it left Gene Vincent to be topping the bill alone for the concert. So Alan Williams decided he was going to pad out the show with his local bands. So Cass and the Casanovas, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and of course, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, who at this time, Ringo was the drummer for the Hurricanes. So one of the many times when the early Beatles and Ringo stories were kind of running in parallel until they met up later in Hamburg. So Alan Williams wanted to show off local Liverpool talent. He wanted to show how how much there was. And, you know, he achieved this goal because this was kind of the start of all of these bands sort of coming together and kind of gelling and forming this Merseyside sound out of which the Beatles obviously emerged victorious. So this concert took place on May 3rd, 1960. And it convinced Larry Parnes that it was a good idea to use these local Liverpool bands again to back up these singers like Billy Fury and, and Duffy Power, another one of these touring guys, and of course, Johnny Gentle on their upcoming tours. The way the Beatles entered the picture was one of these regular Sunday afternoon talent competitions. This one, the winning prize was a backing spot on the tour to back Johnny Gentle. The tour itself was called the Best Ballad Show Tour. Actually, <laughs> I, I could see that. Why not? Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, these auditions were held on May 10th in Liverpool, and the Silver Beatles were chosen to back the tour in Scotland for a week-long tour that started May 20th, 10 days later. Wow, that's rapid. That's one of those things that blows my mind about these sort of, about this time. It's that not only were all of these, these bands like made up of literal kids and teenagers, but 
everything ran on such a quick timetable. I mean, I know a lot of the songs were only like three basic chords or whatever, but they really needed to be focused and pick up their work and, and really move fast. And the Beatles could do it. They were paid a grand total of 120 pounds, which included travel. And it is somewhat unclear whether they actually won this spot based on their talent or if they were just the only band who could actually leave so soon, since it didn't sound like their audition was exactly the most stellar moment in their careers. There is something to be said for being efficient and for, you know, consider maybe some of the other bands, the guys had actual jobs or... You know, in the factories, like a lot of the Merseyside guys had at the time, especially so early in the Merseyside sound days. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I can totally see where it's like, oh, these dumb kids in this band, they're not good, but hey, they can actually make it. Yeah, they can make a noise that is sort of what we need and they can show up and that's it. Showing up is half the battle, people. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I think it's still pretty, uh, pretty accurate to I this day. But... Sound advice, just show up. If you can yeah. show up. There you go. And at least our our main players, John, Paul, George, and Stu at this time, they were dedicated. They were there. The Silver Beatles lineup was John, Paul, George, Stu. And for this particular stint, it was Tommy Moore on drums. Now, Tommy Moore has a very memorable but short time with the Beatles. Alan Williams found Tommy Moore for them because they didn't have a drummer. They really hardly ever had a drummer. David (laughs) Bedford actually has a really great book about all the drummers who were part of the Beatles history up to Ringo. There's just so many of them. Tommy was probably one of the most unusual ones. Tommy was born in 1931, which meant he was 28. Oh my gosh, so much older. He was 28. And the oldest Beatle at this point wasn't even 20 yet. I mean, it was a lifetime. You know, this guy lived a hard life. He was working for Garrison Bottle Works and he was involved in what seemed to be like both an emotionally and physically like violent relationship with his girlfriend. And I don't know if he was always the one doing the abusing. Like, I think he was also getting regularly beaten up by this woman. So he was often just getting into fights and he just wasn't reliable to appear at these gigs. And even though he was set up to play with the Beatles, his first date with them was at this Larry Parnes audition. And he was so late that Johnny Hutchinson of the big three had to sit in for him until he actually showed up. Johnny Hutchinson is another interesting story. One day we might want to talk about him. I was going to say, I would, I think we need to do a, a proper Mercy Beat episode, talk about the big three and the foremost and a lot of the other the guys, uh, and I talk about it a lot, but as a sidebar to this whole story, anybody's interested, please, please check out the documentary, Some Other Guys, because it talks about Johnny Hutchinson, it talks about like all of the guys who would play the cavern with the Beatles and after the Beatles left for London. And it's all just a big incestuous pool, but it's so interesting because yeah. they all had, had dealings with each other, especially during this early period. Yeah, I love this period. I think this yeah. is so fascinating. It's so and, great. and all of these people... They were just so prolific, these guys. All these bands. And they're great. The music is amazing. I think they really pushed each other. I mean, there's just all this live music. You're always hearing your competitors play. And you're always driven to be better and better and better. So many others, yeah. Yeah, so Tommy finally showed up. He ended up being with the band for a little while, but didn't have the best time. He didn't get along with these teenagers. And um, especially John Lennon. Shocking. (laughs) Thomas. John was such a great guy. He was so amenable. Like, what are you talking about? Nobody, somebody getting along with John. He's just friendly to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's such a, he was such a bubbly guy. <laughs> yeah, like 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 the time when they were on the Scottish tour, and um, 
they got into a car accident. Uh, Johnny Gentle was actually driving and they got into a car accident where Tommy lost his front teeth and he got a concussion and oh, went no. to the hospital. John Lennon dragged <laughs> Tommy Moore from his hospital bed and made him sit behind the drums which oh did not God. help somebody with a concussion. John also tried to make Tommy laugh so he could burst his stitches. Oh my God, what an asshole. Somehow, John was actually surprised when Tommy wanted to quit. Yeah, um, I'm not though. <laughs> so Tommy decided that five weeks was more than enough time with the Beatles, especially with John. So he quit the band without any notice or warning on the 11th of June, 1960. They actually had a gig that night and wasn't there. And so the Beatles went to his house and his girlfriend basically told him to fuck off that he was at work and he wanted nothing to do with them anymore. So the rest of the Beatles went to his work at Garrison Bottle Works to try and persuade Tommy to join the show. Tommy refused to get off his forklift to talk to them and flatly refused to play with them ever again. Thus ends the short but storied career of Tommy Moore, the Beatles drummer. Uh, Tommy Moore, we knew you briefly, but thanks for the memories. Yes. So rewinding back five weeks to when Tommy was sitting high in that drum kit, that tour began on May 20th, 1960, continued through small venues like ballrooms and town halls in Scotland for a full week. The last date was on May 28th. The official billing didn't mention the Beatles by name. Instead, it was Johnny Gentle and his group. I guess they didn't have a lot of time for marketing. And while the exact set list is unknown, we do know the Beatles performed by themselves, kind of as the warm-up band before Johnny came on the stage, and then they stayed on the stage to accompany Johnny. George Harrison recalled that they performed Elvis Presley's Teddy Bear and Wear My Ring Around Your Neck. Other sources said some of the songs in the set list were It Doesn't Matter Anymore and Raining in My Heart by Buddy Holly, I Need Your Love Tonight by Elvis Presley, Poor Little Fool by Ricky Nelson, Come On Everybody by Eddie Cochran and a few others. No known recordings, though, are known to exist, so it's all reliant on the memory of the people involved. Um, back to naming, the band was most likely known as the Silver Beatles at that time, but we're still kind of experimenting with the full name of the band and the spelling of the Beatles. During this time, there were three, the Beatles as we know it, the Beatles like the bug, as in Silver Beatles, and Beatles with A-L-S, Beatles. The Beatles themselves were also experimenting with their names, and this is when Paul debuts his stage <laughs> name, Paul Ramon. Yes, taking a taking a page from uh, from Ricky Damone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ricky Damone, <laughs> Paul Ramon, Paul. Are you copying Johnny Gentle? He's been copying Johnny Gentle, obviously, for uh, seventy years now. But we've just discovered this. This is groundbreaking. I don't know how I feel about this, Paul. I don't know either. But you know, Mark Lewis didn't bring you the scoop, did he? No, he did not. You heard <laughs> it here first. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So we got a, we got a Carl Harrison after Carl Perkins and Stuart called himself Stuart de Stahl after the abstract painter Nicholas de Stahl. Classic Stuart, by the way. I know. It's, I love it so much. He's like, I'm going to call myself after a painter because that's it, like, what I like to do. Not yeah. this. Not Stu, this. Can Stu be more Stuish, honestly? We get it, Stu. You're cool. You're cooler than us. We get it. Very cool. You have those sunglasses. Your back turned. Yeah. John, it's been thought that maybe John called himself Johnny Silver, but John himself has denied this, probably because with a little hindsight, that sounds dumb. So Johnny Gentle met the Beatles half an hour before their first show. They got 20 minutes for their first rehearsal before they could go on stage. A lifetime. 
oh my God. Like things <laughs> move fast, but 20 minutes with a brand new band of like 17 year olds? What the hell? Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, you know, that, that says a lot about the Beatles, whatever the quality of their playing, that they were willing to do that. Johnny's first thoughts when he met them, he says, when I first saw them, I wondered what on earth Parnes had said to me. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, they were kind of a motley crew in those early days. Yeah, I mean, he denied saying that he said that, but he kind of changed his tune, said he immediately liked their youth and enthusiasm. Maybe that was true, too. Everybody changes their story to fit into the Beatles narrative. So many people do that. They do. Once you start getting famous because people know about you in the Beatles anthology, you're not going to say you thought the Beatles sucked. What are you, Alan Williams? (laughs) I respect that about Alan Williams, actually. (laughs) The man who gave the Beatles away. I respect that. No shame in his game. (laughs) I don't know how impressive the Beatles were, but the reports were that with a little rehearsal time after their first pretty disastrous opening night, they did improve. Also not impressive, the Beatles' stage outfits. Johnny Gentle was able to lend George a black shirt because John and Paul already had them, but that's as far as stage costumes went for them. So thank God for Brian. Yes, yes. I mean, I'm not surprised they, they couldn't pull that together before Brian. That's, that was one of his many amazing things he did for them. Many. Just going back to watching A Hard Day's Night, because the end of that is like the concert scene. Yeah, oh. Where they're all dressed so well, and they do that little bow after every song. Uh, I know, and it really drives home, like the choreography. Obviously, they put it in a movie. You know, it it was that impressive. I can't imagine what it was like to watch it. Like, that perfect synchronicity. Yeah, their suits are so well tailored. Dude, they wear those black turtlenecks in A Hard Day's Night, too, or at least John does, and looks so good. It does, it does. Yeah, so sleek. But yeah, I'm not shocked, you know, before they were all 20, that they couldn't put together an outfit. Not, Not surprised. Yeah. Yeah, so thanks, Brian. So the tour passed pretty uneventfully, uh, except for the car crash in the middle of it, R.I.P. Tommy Moore's front teeth and probably Tommy Moore's patience. Why did he ever write a book? I would read Tommy Moore's book. I'm sure he's not with us anymore, but... He passed away, like, in 1981. Oh, bless his heart. Yeah. I don't think he regretted his time with the Beatles, but I think he was well-pleased to just put it behind him and never think about seeing them again. Yeah, I'm sure got him some free drinks around the Liverpool pub, so... Oh, probably. I mean, who wouldn't have wanted to hear that story? If I went into the Jacaranda and Tommy Moore was sitting there, oh my God. Yeah, oh yeah, with his, like, fake two front teeth. Oh. Be like, you know how I got these? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're gold. Well, oh, the fans. They're gold? <laughs> Damn, okay, good, good for that guy. No, I, I don't know. The only pictures I found of him later years, mouth closed, I couldn't tell. Damn. Well, we can pretend they were gold. Like, he yeah. had a big grill. <laughs> but one really interesting thing happened during this tour, which I didn't know about this, and it's so cool, is that this was actually the point when a John Lennon lyric made it into a recorded song. Johnny Gentle was kind of playing around with the song he was writing. It was called I've Just Fallen for Someone, and he was having trouble with the middle eight. So he played it for John and George, and John offered up some lyrics and a melody that fit the middle of the song, and Johnny Gentle used those, and he recorded the song for Parlophone in 1961 under yet another name, Darren Young. (laughs) What the fuck? There's a lot to unpack here, but also Darren Young. Come on. Johnny, just stick with your friggin', like, you know, the winner, winner chicken dinner here. Yeah, I don't know. I, I wonder what his kids are named. Like, how many names do you have to come up with? Like, <laughs> what if he had different kids under each pseudonym? 
That would be amazing. <laughs> you know, that's actually a viable reason for having all these pseudonyms. You just oh, had God. six families. What? Okay, this is uh, this is this is also going to be headcanon now. This is why Johnny Jingle changed his name like sixteen times. <laughs> yep. He's running from his sixteen families. Oh my God, <laughs> shit! I love this story. I, I love know. It. I love this story that we're making up. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so great. So Darren Young, and maybe this is part of the reason that this wasn't really that known in in, in Beatles history, and that it's just so many damn names and it wasn't the, even the name that the Beatles knew him under even though it was the name he was under when he and John collaborated on the song together the song was was put out John was not credited and uh, let's give it a little bit of a listen to the middle eight we know It's cute. Yeah, it's cute. I like it. And what, yeah. so what are the actual lyrics that John wrote? We just heard those, right? Yeah. His lyrics are, we know that we'll get by, just wait and see, just like the songs tell us, the best things in life are free. Okay. Money reference. I mean, that makes sense. That tracks. Obviously, they, they would cover money later. And considering that the lyrics that follow this middle eight describe falling in love using a Humpty Dumpty metaphor, it's Uh-oh. pretty clear that John definitely brought something to the song. Wow. Thanks, John. Nursery rhymes. Very popular in this period of pop yeah. music. Very strange. Teenagers love a nursery they rhyme. Love, they love fucking Humpty Dumpty. There's nothing that teenagers love more than that damn egg falling off a wall. Like... <laughs> That's what the teens like. That's all the record executives thought so anyway. I think uh, Britain's teenagers agreed because the record sold about 3,000 copies total. And I just looked up some other statistics. And for comparison, Del Shannon's Runaway, also released in 1961, was said to have sold about 80,000 copies a day at its peak. A so, day. Wow. Damn. That's amazing. Yeah. Didn't do so well, unfortunately. Yeah. But fun to kind of discover this very early John Lennon lyric just in this random song. Yeah, that's so cool. So John's first recorded contribution to a song was 61. Yeah. Wow. That's so that's like, yeah, that rearranges a lot of a lot of things in your head in the Beatles timeline. Yeah, for Parlophone, too. It wasn't just like they did it. Oh, so it wasn't some anywhere. like food little label. It was Parlophone. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, crazy. That is interesting. And his part is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's probably the best part of that song, uh, considering that the rest is about Humpty Dumpty, apparently. You know, the bar was very low, but we'll give him that credit. So the aftermath of this tour, it was kind of a slow roll. Johnny Gentle did later say that despite their rawness as a group, he was impressed with them, and he urged his manager, Larry Parnes, to sign them. Parnes didn't want to, because he specialized in solo singers and wasn't <laughs> interested in all of the crap that bands come with, so he didn't want to do it. Kind of fair enough, though, honestly. Yeah. Obviously, I, I imagine he'd kick himself later, but I yeah. get it. But at the time, he was probably saying, well, I've met John Lennon. That's true. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> yeah, the guy who tried to bust the other guy's stitches? Um, yeah, I met John Lennon. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't like him. Don't like that guy. <laughs> Johnny Gentle played one last time with the Beatles on July 2nd, 1960. So uh, about two months after this tour, he dropped in on a local gig. The Beatles were playing at the Grosvenor Ballroom and they performed the whole Scottish tour set list with them. Whatever that was, they performed it. 
And Johnny later asked the Beatles to come in a subsequent tour of Scotland with him as his backers, but the Beatles were already in Hamburg by then. So instead, he was backed by Cass and the Casanovas, who were later the big three. So back to our good old friend, Johnny Hodge. Aw, Johnny Hodge. Yeah. So many Johnnies. As for Johnny himself, his career kind of petered out soon after these tours. Um, You know, even a song with John Lennon's writing in it didn't really help him out. But he settled into a normal life and started a uh, successful joinery business, which is joints and other household sort of things. So, you know, woodworking and building that guitar. I guess he did have a talent. Yeah, it's good business. He played on it later. Uh, He briefly came into the public eye in the Beatles world again when the Beatles anthology came out, piqued interest in this first Scottish tour. And then a few years later, he wrote a memoir of this time called Johnny Gentle and the Beatles First Ever Tour, published in 1998. For the Beatles, just three months later, their career hit their first major milestone as Alan Williams secured them a spot in Hamburg's Indra and Kaiser Keller Clubs. And they left on August 17th, 1960. So just about three months after this whole Scottish tour thing happened. Quite possibly, again, their main qualification was being able to leave on short notice (laughs) because they needed to fill the spot. They couldn't find anybody. And the booking also helped them to secure their first long-term drummer in Pete Best because they weren't able to go unless they had found themselves a drummer. So that's the story of Johnny Gentle. Wow, Um, amazing. Yeah, this one week really, you know, even though it was just a week and it wasn't a lot, it seemed to me to change a lot about the trajectory of the band because it gave them the chance to tour for the first time with someone who had some recording experience and success. They overall got good enough reviews, which led to more gigs, probably the Hamburg stints and Alan Williams backing to get even more local gigs. The continuing role of incredible good luck or kismet in continually pushing the Beatles towards better and better things, even though they may not have been technically ready or up to par. It was definitely a baptism by fire in a lot of ways for them. The thing about the Beatles is even if like in this instance, their first night with Johnny Gentle really sucked, they always pulled it out. They always got better. They always learned from it. They always knew how to make the situation work for them. And they did that during their entire career. For sure. Yeah. And and also the first instance of at least a John Lennon, but, you know, had it been credited right, probably a Lennon-McCarthy piece being recorded anywhere, even though it was largely unknown. And, you know, if you think about the significance of them playing what is totally an international tour, you know, going up to Scotland, uh, you know, leaving Britain, That kind of sets the scene for them sort of becoming the world phenomenon later. It's wild to think, you know, you think about the year of 1960, and you've got this tour in in May, and then they're in Hamburg by August. But how rapidly things change. It's just like a ball rolling down the hill. Yeah, Beatles time is not like regular time. Because you think about then they sign with Brian, you know, November 61. It's like, and then it's like, everything's in like hyperspeed. Wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I feel like they probably couldn't have done this if they hadn't You know, there's this little break, like you said, an international tour, a chance to distinguish yourself from your peers because you're doing something like this, a chance to get experience in front of larger crowds who are expecting something more professional because your headliner is a recording artist. They got that push to make that next step up. And they got in front of Larry Parnes, which was a huge thing back then. Larry Parnes was, you know, we think of Brian as this massive impresario, but like you said earlier, like he was the guy for a long, long time. And Brian certainly knew who Larry Parnes was. So it's really kind of 
putting them in front of these powerful people. Like, sure, Alan Williams, also powerful in his own way. Yeah. And without the Hamburg gig, yeah. I mean, you know, you always think about all these little steps in the Beatles career and what would have happened if they hadn't gone on this tour? What would have happened if right. they hadn't gotten the Hamburg gig or if they couldn't have found Pete Best and they didn't go like all of these tiny little, little yeah. moments in time that led to the Beatles. Yeah. It blows my mind. It does. It totally blows my mind. It's so strange because you couldn't write this shit, you know? No, if you wrote this shit, you'd be like, your editor would be like, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this, this is, is not- this is uh, not believable. Like no yeah. one's going to buy this. You got to tone it down. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and this was, you know, and this was obviously a really significant part, their first real tour. Yeah. So like I said, this is part one of a two-parter about the Beatles' early tours. The second one will focus on their last early tour, which is they were part of a bill where Helen Shapiro was the headliner and She's got a very interesting voice, and I think the story of that tour is really interesting, too. Her voice is so amazing. She's got this deep sort of, like, uh, kind of like blue-eyed soul, like a little Dusty Springfield-ish. Yeah. yeah. She's amazing. She was so young. Was she? Oh, wow. I can't wait to hear about this. I didn't realize how young she was. Yeah, she was only 14 or 15. What? I didn't know that. And with that voice, it's crazy. That's insane. Yeah, she's (laughs) she's fantabulous. Yeah, so part two to come. Can't wait. So we end as we always end with our latest Beatles obsessions of the moment. What's yours? Yes, we do. Well, mine's a little tangential, but I have to go there because I am uh, celebrating. Well, I guess Epi, my cat is celebrating his 15th birthday. And Aww. of course, he's named after Brian. So it's Beatles related. Don't at me. But he celebrated his 15th birthday earlier this summer. Not quite sure when he was born, but his 15th gotcha day is in a few days. So very excited to celebrate him, the most wonderful cat in the world, and uh, has the best namesake. Happy birthday, Epi. Yes, I got a little party hat for him. He hates it, (laughs) um, but I don't care. And he's going to wear it and get a picture. (laughs) And uh, I got like little cat sunglasses that I've been putting on him. And I'm going to snap some good pictures and I'll post them. Yes, please post them. I want to see all the celebrations. Oh, I will. Yes, he he deserves it. He's he's the best. Oh, sweet guy. Yeah. So what about you, Erica? I'm sure yours is a little bit more on the nose. Well, my obsession is actually also kind of Beatles tangential. Do you know the old show Countdown with Keith Olbermann? No, but weirdly, now that you say that name, I'm having a recalled memory um, of seeing Keith Olbermann at a Paul show. Um, Like a, not actually at the show itself, but at a pre-show, like a VIP area. Oh my God. So, okay. (laughs) When, where, what? It was 2013 uh, at the Barclays Center when he played there. But the ticket I had got me into this like pre-bar party thing but it was all it, nothing was free it was like not that cool but I do remember Keith Olbermann being there because I remember seeing him and being like wow he's tall <laughs> that was yeah, my he, thought <laughs> he, he's tall and he's he's like 6'5 I think and he's really sexy yeah he's a silver fox uh-huh uh-huh so yeah he had the show called Countdown in the mid mid late 2000s like just around the time between when Bush was fucking up the 9-11 stuff and Obama was coming onto the scene and he was like responsible for my political awakening. Basically, I loved him. He has this wonderful mix of like extreme intelligence and pomposity, but also humor and the knowledge that the things that he's saying is like super rants, but are also like like he sees the ridiculousness in all of it. Mm-hmm. So 
to me, that felt like the perfect kind of voice for that crazy time. Um, you know, like George W. Bush, like pre Obama, when everything was just like it's a total clusterfuck. Sure. And, yeah. I mean, I don't know if things got better, but they certainly over the years got worse. Um, but around 2008 or so, uh, Keith Olbermann's show was canceled and there was a bunch of drama and whatever. And like, he never got back onto political news. I think he was on ESPN as a sportscaster or whatever. But recently I saw a tweet from Paul McCartney's guitarist, Brian Ray, who announced that there was going to be a new version of Countdown with Keith Olbermann and a podcast format. And that Brian was one of two people being music director for the new podcast. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was really excited because um, Brian seems to be a wonderful guy. He's extremely active on political Twitter. He's very yeah. liberal. He's got a lot of smart things to say. And the idea that somebody who I consider like one of our own in the Beatles community was instrumental in helping bring about the resurrection of this show, which was one of my favorite things in the world, in the political world, was just such an exciting melding of the worlds. And, you know, I'm just really excited for, for Brian to be part of this. And I'm really excited for, for Olbermann to be back. And the show is really good. And not only does he do his, the crazy things that he used to do on the show, like counting down the worst people in the world for the week and all that, <laughs> but um, he has a segment every day called Every Dog Has Its Day, where he highlights a dog that's in a kill shelter. Because <gasps> he's really so into adopting dogs and getting dogs adopted. So oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the most wonderful little thing and the show is is really exciting and so if you lean left and you're interested in that I would highly suggest subscribing to Countdown with Keith Olbermann and not only are you getting an, an amazing show but you're supporting you know one of our Beatle people doing something yeah. pretty awesome that's so great I'm gonna hit subscribe on that because that sounds like a great podcast but that's extra special yeah that brian ray is doing the music for it yeah and he mentions he calls him out every single episode too which i really love oh, fabulous yeah. that's such a that's a total perfect pairing right there it really is it really is and you know brian if you're ever if you're listening what you, what you know you are we know paul listens we know brian listens like everybody listens we'd love to talk to you about your your experience with uh, not only paul mccartney because it's your 20th anniversary of being in a paul mccartney yeah. band yeah but helping to bring the Olbermann show back. So many things we could talk to Brian Ray about. So yes, Brian, come on, let's, let's have a fun time chatting. Let's do it. Well, in the meantime, while we're waiting for Brian to get back to us, thanks for listening to BC The Beatles. As always, follow the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now, give us a rating and review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We will be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. And remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com too. And we will see you the next time. Bye. Bye.